Hello there, I am Manuel Avila and this is Spirituality and Science. You may be aware of the current situation of general disbelief that we are living in the world. There is crisis in trust towards all the established systems, mainly towards religion, politics, corporations and particularly science. That is basically towards all the powers that have traditionally maintained a monopoly on truth. And well, we have to be honest and start by accepting that all these institutions have deceived us more or less frequently. But then if we're not going to believe in our institutions that are part of those systems, then who are we supposed to trust? Ourselves? Well, that seems to be the way, right? The phenomenon of manipulation and deception must be analyzed case by case because it doesn't always have a one-size-fits-all explanation. The motivations and methods for making up or disguising the truth depends largely on the objectives of each entity and ultimately to each individual who belongs to those institutions. In a previous episode, I shared that there have been social experiments that show that human beings have the tendency to form elites, to take advantage of the less favored to ensure their survival, or simply to maintain their dominant position. It is clear that lying is almost a prerequisite for the simple existence of those elites. Politicians lie to convince their constituents that they are the ones to govern them and then to mask the pettiness that they commit. The world's billionaires tell us that they're Privileged position is due entirely to their effort and leadership, without counting on their coming from a golden cradle in most cases, or the influence they exert with their money on the powers that be to enlarge their wealth. In short, this has always been known and is already considered a necessary evil. Democracy and capitalism perpetuate vices but at least they are not as terrible as almost all other forms or government or organizations that we have seen. Dictatorships, communism, feudalism, colonialism, and most autocracies. Even most indigenous communities have such a high record of injustice, irrationality, and or backwardness that they convinced us that the current system that we have in the Western world is the only sensible alternative. As Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst system of government except for all the others that have been invented. The consensus seems to be that lies, corruption and inequity apart, capitalism and democracy are the best we can have. So we better swallow the lies and with resignation because it could be a lot worse. But then we're left with two systems that have traditionally been sold as custodians of truth religion, and science. Both of them are nowadays targets of incredulity from the masses and many times blamed for many of the evils of the modern world. Most religious people base their cosmogony on divine revelations, so there are only two possibilities. Either there are really uh, deities that can communicate with the human being and reveal the truth, or everything that is consigned in those sacred texts is made up by, by humans who either believe that they are inspired by divinity or deliberately misled to give power to their ideas. If the first possibility were true, that there is a God, 
that uh, inspires or that uh, directly writes these truths, then we would have to accept that there is only one true religion and that the others would be false. And also accept that many theories that go against what science has proven in recent centuries are not true. If, on the other hand, the truth is that these revelations were man-made, then there are two possibilities, that the deception sought a personal or a group interest, like an elite interest, or that it at least genuinely sought some type of welfare for the community uh, to which those lies were directed. Well, the latter is precisely what Yuval Noah Harari raises in his book, Sapiens. Religion is the way through which primitive societies made many individuals collaborate for the common good. So then divine revelations would be stories that we tell ourselves to be able to cooperate. It goes something like this. When we lived as hunter-gatherers, human beings formed small groups of 10 or 20 individuals who were constantly on the move in search for food and other resources. This was the case for hundreds of thousands of years. And then our brain evolved with the ability to maintain a handful of relationships with other people, create bonds of trust and the ability to quickly determine bad intentions or deception in those people. This is the reason why even today humans are more or less efficient in judging the sincerity in people we have known for a long time, such as members of our family. But then 10,000 to 15,000 years ago, humans discovered agriculture and went from nomadic hunter-gatherers to settling small towns. Over time, these patches became communities, then villages, and suddenly, after millions of years of evolution in small herds, we ended up having to deal with communities of dozens, then hundreds, and later thousands of individuals. Well, our brain hasn't had enough time to cut up and we haven't developed the ability to create bonds of trust with so many people. Rather the opposite, we instinctively distrust individuals who do not belong to the same pack, the same tribe as us. The fact is that suddenly we had to cooperate no longer among a few but thousands and distrust was the predominant relationship with so many people. This is the reason why war became our companion from the very beginning of civilization. Our instinct tells us that we can only trust our close group, that the others would necessarily try to take advantage of us when not exterminate us entirely. And so it was that conflict after conflict, we began to kill each other until a solution or better a workaround emerged. The tribal leaders started creating stories about gods who watched them from heaven, who chose them as their children, their protected, and who demanded total loyalty in return to provide food, health, and long life. That would have been somewhat difficult to believe at face value, but there was a powerful argument. Whenever a member of the tribe died unexpectedly or a plague attacked crops or animals or people, the sage of the group would decree that such tragedy was the punishment for having violated their God's will. Why? Well, because 
whatever, they would have investigated and they would have probably reviewed the recent events in the community and found something that could be the culprit for, for that punishment. It could be that a couple had sex without the blessing of the elders or that a woman with her period had been cooking or that they had forgotten to make an offering to the divinity or maybe because there was someone interested in, in, in someone from their own gender. Anything that was not routine in the community could be suspected of having caused the divine wrath. But in any case, something had to be found to strengthen this belief in divine power and, above all, to maintain the order of the group. It sounds terrible, right? But the truth is that the fear of divine punishment and respect for authority allowed us to overcome the instinctive distrust between tribes. If the tribe next door feared the same God, then we could rest assured that they also obeyed the same laws. One of those laws invariably was, you shall not harm your fellow man. The problem was when tribes with different creeds ran into each other. The others are a menace because they do not obey God. So they had to be annihilated or through wars, invasions and conquest be converted. This was the way that groups of trust grew to have eventually millions of members could cooperate to some extent. Without religion, we probably wouldn't have the ability to achieve a global civilization the way we have. However, little by little, another type of knowledge was making its way. In the ancient Greece, humans discovered that the only tools we had to reveal the truth other than divine revelations were our senses, our mind, experience, and cooperation to discuss and discern through debate. The Greek philosophers brought their observations of the world to the central agora to debate and eventually reveal some truths. This way, many advances were achieved, especially in the field of humanities and some scientific principles because the debate served to refine and discard the fallacies and biases that were inadvertently introduced into their observations. There must have been philosophers who deliberately lied for their own gain, but it was very likely that their deceptions were thwarted by other philosophers with better arguments. Either way, no matter how much effort and goodwill they had, there were issues that were simply beyond their mind's ability to discern. Things like quantum physics, relativity, or even mechanical physics not always correspond with the intuitive logic of the human being, nor can they be analyzed with the simple use of common sense. For this reason, the Greeks failed to find answers to important questions such as the origins of life, the nature of consciousness, or our place in the universe. But the methods of experimentation, debate of ideas, and validation of results as a way of understanding the world allowed important achievements. The Greeks, and in particular Pythagoras, Euclid, and their pupils, adopted mathematics as a tool to understand the universe, observing that many phenomena seem to correspond with the results predicted by equations. Most of us have studied his principles of geometry and trigonometry, which are still applied to architecture, physics, astronomy, navigation, and many other disciplines. Archimedes understood the concept of volume and floating of bodies when he submerged 
himself in his bathtub. But thanks to mathematics, we have also been able to explain and support his discoveries before other scholars. One very interesting example of early science that caught my attention many years ago was the case of Eratosthenes, around 225 BC, who was able to measure with utmost precision the circumference of the Earth using just sticks, sunlight, and a lot of patience. Well, in the library of Alexandria, he found a report of observations about Siena, a city located about 800 kilometers south of Alexandria, in which it was said that on the day of the summer solstice, which is June 21st at noon, the objects, such as the city obelisk, did not produce any shade, and sunlight could be seen at the bottom of the wells. This is because the city is on the tropic line, uh, right under the sun in that time of the year. Eratosthenes realized that these same phenomenon did not occur in Alexandria on the same day and at the same time. He correctly assumed that the sun was at a great distance and that its rays upon reaching the earth did so in a practically parallel manner. This confirmed his idea that the surface of the earth was curved because had it been flat, this difference uh, between the shadows in two cities, one city presenting shadow and the other not at the same time, the same day of the year, would have not occurred otherwise. The next step was to measure in Alexandria the angle that the sun's rays formed with the vertical uh, that day, which by construction is equal to the angle whose vertex is in the center of the earth. This angle turned out to be, by his calculations, 7.12 degrees. The other thing he had to find out was the distance between Siena and Alexandria. It was not exactly known what this distance was, so he paid an assistant to measure the walking distance between the two cities. He found the distance to be 5,000 stadia. Eratosthenes made the calculations with the help of Pythagoras' mathematics and concluded that the circumference of the earth measured uh, 360 times 5,000 divided by 7.2, that is 250,000 stadiums. Although there are no exact data, it is known that the stadium is the equivalent to about 160 meters. Therefore, 250,000 stadiums were approximately 40,000 kilometers, which is uh, the equivalent, uh, this would be the circumference, uh, would be equivalent to a radius of 6,366 kilometers. This is less than 20 kilometers, the Earth's radius that we know today. But this story is particularly interesting because it shows that even in the ancient Greece, one single person could have had enormous scientific impact when there is the willingness to find the truth with the use of a system to corroborate, discuss, and confirm theories. But above all, this story shows the power that gives us doubting the prevailing knowledge and accepting different truths when the necessary evidence is provided and protocols are followed to reduce the effect of our biases. By the way, if flat earthers were to repeat the experiment made by Eratosthenes, they would find the exact same results which modern science uses today. Of course, 
This power in the hands of the masses was very dangerous for the prevailing powers at the time. So as soon as the Roman Empire spread to the territory of Egypt, Julius Caesar himself is said to have set fire on part of the Library of Alexandria. And a couple centuries later, the library would end up falling completely in the middle of fighting between Jews and Christians. That is, in one of the many wars between them and us. From there, we had to wait for more than a thousand years of a very slow progress of science in what is known as the Dark Ages. For 10 centuries, humanity resisted the advancement of science and the only truth that was widely accepted was that of the sacred books. Of course, wars between the followers of each text were the order of the day and we had to go through the infamous Crusades, Holy War and other atrocities. We had to wait until the Renaissance, which was called like that precisely because it was the rebirth of the ideas of the ancient Greece, to continue advancing and evolving to a modern society. But what was known at the time as the Knowledge Revolution was rather, as Noah Harari puts it, a revolution of ignorance. We dared to accept that there were things that we didn't know, that there were no books that held all the answers. And when we finally accepted that we could be wrong, that is when the door to advance towards knowledge was open. It is doubt and not certainty what pushed us towards enlightenment. And so, after all this journey throughout history, we can recognize that our skepticism of established knowledge has a very deep and well-justified foundation. By nature, we distrust those in power and have the instinct to investigate on our own and find the truth. But this research cannot outright ignore everything that thousands of people have discovered before us. Imagine if each doctor had to invent penicillin on their own or learn to remove tumors by trial and error. Would you be willing to be operated on by a skeptical doctor who does not believe in the theory of modern surgery, for example? Would you trust your money to a bank that does not believe in modern theories of economics or financial maths? Or simply, would you buy a cell phone from a company that doesn't believe in semiconductor physics or that decided to invent the microprocessor or LED screens on their own? We have made all the breakthroughs as species by drawing on the knowledge accumulated over thousands of years but also by doubting all the times and by being willing to accept new truths when supported by rigorous methods, strict testing and the backing of the academic community. For two and a half centuries, we accepted Newton's mechanical physics as the absolute truth that governed physics in the universe, but along came Einstein and rethought many of those laws in the light of new observations very complex maths and the support of hundreds of researchers who worked with, with him, with Einstein. Many resisted his ideas, but the weight of evidence prevailed. This brings me to the last point that I want to address. Skepticism is our most powerful tool, but only when used by rigorous, disciplined people who are also skeptical of themselves. To investigate, you have to doubt your own observations. 
contrast them with other researchers, look for strategies to reduce the biases of your own mind, test alternative theories to rule out other possibilities, and so on. The good thing is that this system is not the monopoly of large universities or any government. If we want to know the truth about vaccines or about economy or global warming, it is not enough to spend hours in internet forums or watching YouTube videos. If you really want to know, you have to go to academia, spend years studying accumulated knowledge, break your head with advanced mathematics, with chemical equations, spend hundreds of hours in labs, field experiments, conducting clinical studies. Knowledge is not exclusive to anyone, but it is not available to anyone either. Have a good journey and a nice breeze. <laughs>